about a year and a half ago or so, some friends rented a house for a few of us to share on the Cape. We went down there to do some months of meditation by the ocean. And when I went down, moved into my room, the first thing I saw was that somebody had left a cartoon for me sitting on the desk in my room. It was from the Peanuts comic strip. And in the first frame of the cartoon, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown, and she says to him, Discouraged again, eh, Charlie Brown? You know what your trouble is? The whole trouble with you is that you're you. And then in the next frame, Charlie Brown says in response to her, Well, what in the world can I do about it? Then in the final frame, Lucy says to him, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the trouble. (laughs) And somehow, whenever I was doing walking meditation in that room, I would walk by that desk and then my eye would just fall upon that. The trouble with you is that you're you. (laughs) And then I'd walk on. Because of course, that is the lesson so many of us have taken to heart. That's just how we feel about ourselves. And the question becomes, how do we, not in judgment or fear or scorn of that state, how do we transform it nonetheless out of greater compassion for ourselves and a greater sense of our own wholeness? Sometimes when I talk about metta, I call it the unconfused heart because we can be terribly confused about things. And sometimes it seems that we just need to settle down, let things quiet down enough so that we can see more clearly and understand more deeply. Because it's not a state that we adopt you know, thinking, well, I should love myself, I should love all beings, and therefore I will grit my teeth and, you know, no matter what I'm actually feeling, I will somehow manage to hide it and smile. It really is a state of wisdom, of greatest wisdom. I used to hear again and again in my early practice that an uncompounded, uncontitioned, vast state of love in some way was our natural state. That was hard to believe. But what I noticed over greater amounts of time was that any situation in which I began to see more clearly, any situation in which wisdom was greater, where my projections were fewer, my awareness was more connected. Any one of those always brought me back to a state of some greater amount of love and care and compassion. There has never been a time when seeing more clearly or having more insight, being less attached to preconceptions, never has there been a time when that has made me feel more separate. And so somehow the 
confidence has begun to arise that maybe it's true. If wisdom always brings us to this, maybe that is a more natural state. We begin the practice of metta, as we have today, by opening to that possibility of extending loving care to ourselves. Even if we do believe that the whole problem with us is that we're us. And in fact, there's a there's a factor in the Buddhist psychology, the Abhidhamma, that's known as the proximate cause of another element of mind. That is to say, there may be some strong force or the nearest arising condition that can allow something else to happen most readily, most easily, most smoothly. That's what the proximate cause is. It's the thing that can allow something else to happen most easily. And it's said that the proximate cause of metta to arise is seeing the goodness in someone. That if we fixate, if we focus upon what's negative, what's damaging, what's hurtful, we will naturally feel distance, separation, resentment, fear. Whether we're looking at someone else or we're looking at ourselves, it's the same response. Whereas if we look at the good in someone, it's not with the idea of you know, kind of a hallmark Valentine's Day card, but rather a sense of drawing near, of actually having a connection, like with a friend. We may not have friends who are perfect, who are absolutely perfect in all ways. But when we are honestly and clearly, directly looking at difficulties with a friend, we can have a sense almost as though we're doing it standing side by side, rather than across this huge, immense gulf of distance, like you, way, way over there, have nothing to do whatsoever with my life, with me, way over here. And so metta is friendship in that sense. If we focus on the good, whether within ourselves or within others, it can create a bridge so that we can have the sense of togetherness rather than separation. And from that stance, we can look at the difficulties very clearly. This is the first reflection that's often taught in doing metta practice, is to look for the good in people and beginning with ourselves, since we begin with ourselves. And I can remember the first time when I was in Burma, first practicing metta intensively, and I was given this instruction, my very first thought was, I'm not going to do that. I thought, I don't even like people who do that. You know, I always go around looking for the good in people, and it's just kind of stupid, you know. I'm not going to do that. But there I was, I was far from home, and in a, a very enclosed situation where I was seeing my teacher six days a week, and there was no way in the world I was not going to do that. So I did it. I actually, as I was practicing through all these different categories of myself and the benefactor and friend and all these different ones in the sequence, and we begin by looking for the good, even if it was one little sliver. 
that was there in an ocean, a morass of really negative, difficult behavior or actions or qualities. And much to my amazement, it actually worked. It worked in precisely the way it was described to work, not to be a quality of denial or pretense or delusion, but really to erode some of that sense of separation of us and them. It said that when the Buddha himself taught, he always spoke so simply that even a seven-year-old could understand him. And perhaps somewhat as a consequence of this, it's also said that he had many fully enlightened seven-year-old disciples. So sometimes I think that's a little bit of what we need to do, is to be able to get simple about things, to take a risk, to see what happens, not to have these rather jaded opinions like I had. I'm not going to do that. You know, That's what stupid people do. I don't want to do that. That's so dumb. But actually to see if we can find that simplicity within us to make that kind of effort, to look for the good, see what happens. The question then becomes, why don't we like to do that? What has been created or conditioned so that we are so familiar with this sense of separation of self and other. Even within ourselves, that sense of distance, of alienation, of not being whole or integrated. There's an amazing teaching in Buddhism, teachings of the Buddha, in which the Buddha said, the mind is naturally radiant and pure. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. The mind is naturally radiant and pure. It's because of these visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. The word defilement is a not great translation of a Pali word. The word in Pali is klesa, and a more literal translation of that word would be torment of the mind. And that is a concept most of us can get behind. You know, the, the word defilement has a certain, I sometimes think of it as a mid-Victorian air of shock and humiliation, like I'm so defiled. But a tormented mind is something that most of us know, at least from time to time, from within. We know that when we are completely lost and consumed by states like desire, jealousy, fear, envy, anger, it is a torment. It's a really, really painful state of suffering. And yet what the Buddha is saying in this statement is that these states, in essence, are just visiting. The mind is naturally radiant and pure. It's because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. But they're just visiting. 
they're not inherent to our being. They're not, in effect, who we really are. They may visit frequently, but that's sort of not the problem. The problem is, what do we do when we hear them knocking at the door? I often get this image of myself sitting happily at home, minding my own business, hearing one of these knocks at the door, going to open it and saying, welcome home, it's all yours, take over. It's like I forget in that moment who actually lives there. And this is what happens. Our hearts get confused. We identify with these various forces as though they were inherent to our deepest being rather than being adventitious, rather than simply visiting. They may visit really a lot, and that is just the conditioned nature of our minds, of our hearts. But that doesn't matter. When we learn to have an appropriate relationship to them, an appropriate relationship to them doesn't necessarily mean slamming the door in their face either, because it tends to make these forces somewhat more tenacious. An appropriate relationship to all things that arise in our bodies, in our minds, in our world, is one of clarity, of recognition, of openness, of metta, of compassion. Those very states are expressive of who actually lives there, the natural radiance and purity of the mind. So in a funny way, whether we're conscious of it or not, and whether we think of it or not, just practicing in a kindly way to be aware without judging is in itself bringing us closer to the recognition of who we actually are. The mind is naturally radiant and pure. One of the most amazing things that one discovers is that there is a capacity to connect, to care, to love oneself and others that is whole within us as a potential, as a seed. And that it doesn't matter what we may have gone through, either yesterday or ten years ago or ten lifetimes ago, as a person, as an individual, with a story. Because no matter what we have gone through, that capacity is never destroyed. It may be highly covered up, hard to find, definitely hard to believe in, but it's never ever destroyed. And so in many ways our practice is one of gaining greater confidence. It's seeing more clearly that fact, which is a great mystery to us, often at first. We get so used to this creation of separation, the sense of self and other, that we forget. And yet, in the course of doing a practice like this, this continual construction of barriers gets to seem really wearisome, and we see it for what it is. 
and actually can relax from it. That's why we say, especially me, that the practice is not one of trying to create a certain kind of feeling or fabricate it. It's actually one of not doing the things we normally do to push away, to hold back. And so it's a practice of learning how to continually relax back into something that is whole within us. This doesn't mean we lose all sense of discernment and that we walk around in a fog. We can't see clearly what's what. And sometimes people have this fear that if they... It's amazing, really. You know, they have fear that if they become loving people, that people will then just abuse them and it won't matter, you know, and there will be injustice allowed to reign in this world and, you know, we'll just walk around smiling beatifically and not caring and not doing anything about it. People often fear that if they practice meditation, that they'll turn into some kind of gray, amorphous blob, you know, and, and nothing will really matter. None of which is true. I reflect on that a lot, actually, I think, sometimes. What is it that we have come to that love and compassion and kindness can so often be seen as a weakness, you know, as something that drains us of energy and and makes us sort of simplistic and foolish, rather than recognizing it for the incredibly awesome power that it actually is. When we practice with an unconfused heart, actually we see even more clearly, because it's inclusivity that allows us to see clearly. When we're very busy pushing things and people away, then it's hard to get a good look at the same time and to understand more deeply what's actually happening. Everything we do in the practice has a kind of integrity to it. I know that Kamala spoke about this this afternoon. Every time we find that we have wandered far, far, far away from one of the phrases, or the sense of being present. And we can recognize gently that we have been distracted for a very long time and can let go and begin again. That movement of mind is like an expression of forgiveness. When I was first practicing meditation, I was doing Vipassana. And I could not concentrate at all. In Vipassana, the first object, the primary object, is an awareness of the breath. And I somehow had the idea that in order to concentrate my mind, it was going to take a very sort of laborious, grim, terrible effort And when I began, I was in India, my very first meditation retreat, I became so frustrated with the persistent wanderings of my attention away from the breath that one day, in a kind of frenzy 
I made this declaration to myself saying, okay, the next time my attention wanders, I'm just going to bang my head against the wall. And very fortunately for me, the lunch bell rang just then. This is actually a true story. And in those days in India, retreats weren't held in complete silence. There were certain days that were silent, but not the entire retreat. This was a day that was not silent. So after my miserable morning of no concentration and tremendous anger and judgment about myself, I went down to lunch. I was waiting on the lunch line. These two people I had never met were standing behind me. One of them said to the other, well, how was your morning? And this person responded, much to my surprise, with great apparent lightness of spirit, saying, well, you know, I couldn't really concentrate very well this morning, but probably this afternoon will be better. And I turned around in just shock, and I regarded him with this incredible disbelief, and I thought, why isn't he as upset as I am? Doesn't he take this stuff seriously at all? I mean, I don't think he knows what he's doing. And that turned out to be Joseph Goldstein. (laughs) And that was my very first meeting with him. That was how we met. I looked at him and I thought, he doesn't know a thing about meditation because, you know, clearly in my mind, if you're going to practice appropriately, you had to be in as tormented a state as I was in. But in fact, you know, at that point, Joseph had been practicing for some years and I had been practicing for some minutes. (laughs) And what he was expressing was a reflection of some greater understanding of the evolution of the practice. Because as my own practice went on, I learned that that kind of tormented struggle that I was engaged in was not actually fruitful for the development of anything. Concentration, mindfulness, loving-kindness, nothing. Concentration in the Buddhist psychology also has a proximate cause, just as metta does. And the proximate cause of concentration is considered to be happiness. Not struggle, not torment, not strain, not violence, but happiness. When they say happiness in this regard, it doesn't mean sort of the fleeting pleasure that we can get when we get what we want or something nice happens. Because often in that kind of happiness, although it's very nice, there's almost inherently a kind of quiet anxiety that's based on not really being able to allow whatever it is to change in some way. Because we are looking for something outside of ourselves for a greater sense of completion. Almost always there's fear that comes with that. Because what if it changes and no longer gives us that sense of fulfillment, of completion? The happiness that is considered the proximate cause of concentration means a certain sense of tranquility, of acceptance, of being able to begin again, being able to forgive ourselves, having a certain amount of self-respect, 
understanding that there are always what we perceive as ups and downs in practice. It's a cyclical process that we, we actually can't analyze. It doesn't make sense in some ways. It's like a mystery unfolding. And when we can have a greater degree of self-respect, then we can go through difficult periods without feeling so disheartened. Because a difficulty doesn't have to reflect a lack of self-worth to us. And we could go through pleasant and wonderful times in practice without trying to get a death grip on them out of fear that they might ever change and then leave us feeling badly about ourselves once again. We can allow things to move, to unfold, to flow. When the very nature of how we are relating to everything is an expression of that deeper sense of kindness, of compassion. Sometimes as we practice, we cannot see the goodness in ourselves or in somebody else. No way, not for a moment. And if that's the case, then we reflect upon this teaching of the Buddhas in which he said, again very simply, that all beings everywhere want to be happy. That every living, breathing being just wants to be happy. And that it's out of ignorance that we and others create so much suffering. But we all just really want to be happy. That if we look at even the most terrible addictions or the most awful violence or actions, that somewhere in there we will find an urge toward feeling at home in our own lives, feeling ourselves connected to something greater than our limited sense of who we are. That urge may be twisted and distorted and made truly awful by conditions, by ignorance. But somewhere in there, it is there. And this also is like the voice of that natural radiance and purity of the mind. Because in some ways, that's like the best thing about us. We don't have to think about that urge toward happiness as something to be afraid of or ashamed of or feel timid about. Everybody just wants to be happy. And that's beautiful because when that urge, that yearning for happiness is combined with wisdom instead of with ignorance, then it becomes like our homing instinct for freedom. And we can go through many obstacles and many difficulties. This also is an interesting point in metta practice as we do this reflection because people find that they can't so easily allow that either about themselves. And people find that they may be saying the metta phrases for themselves in a way that it's almost like saying, may I be happy? (laughs) And hearing that, we learn to transform that because all beings want to be happy. It's one of the things that unites us most strongly, most fundamentally, that points to our oneness when we can understand it. I had a funny experience a little while ago when I went to Israel to teach. And I had several funny experiences. And um, 
one of them, the first of them, was that I went to the Western Wall in Jerusalem, once known as the Wailing Wall, which is considered to be a very sacred site in Judaism. And it's the custom there to write one's prayers on a piece of paper and to place that paper in a crack somewhere in the wall. So I went there and did just that, very much in the spirit of metta, not so much beseeching a god to uh, grant blessings, but in the way that we do metta, of uh, opening to that energy in the universe and really wishing wholeheartedly for the safety and health and happiness of different people, different of my friends who were kind of in you know, some difficult states at that time. So I went there one day and wrote down all of these prayers and metta wishes on a piece of paper, put it in the crack in the wall, and then somehow I made an assumption, which I never actually questioned until I came home and saw Joseph, and he pointed it out to me. The assumption was that somehow I got it into my head that it was a better thing if the piece of paper stayed in the wall than if it fell to the ground or disappeared. Driven by that assumption, I went back to the wall the following day to check. Now, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of people go to the wall every day and do exactly that thing of placing a piece of paper with their prayers there. But I went back the next day to check, and this is the real miracle. I found my piece of paper. And I was so happy. I thought, oh, great, it's still there. That's really a good sign. Then I went back the next day after that to look for my piece of paper, and I couldn't quite tell if it was there. And that was a little disturbing. I thought, uh-oh, you know, maybe it's not there anymore, but I'm not really sure. Then I went back the next day to check on my piece of paper, and I really couldn't find it. At first, I was, I was quite dispirited, and I felt, I felt really badly about that. And then I suddenly realized that it actually didn't matter. It didn't matter at all because everyone in placing their piece of paper in that wall was expressing in their own way exactly that same thing, that universal wish to be happy. That all of us, in our own language, in our own way, in our own voice, were saying exactly the same thing. That this is what we share. We all just want to be happy. Many times I think of the the techniques and the reflections of a practice such as metta almost as a kind of reminder to point us back to that fact where things can be a lot simpler in a way and more true. There's a very strange sort of teaching of the Buddhas. I always considered it kind of peculiar that says, when you're angry at somebody, you should give them a gift. It's a little strange. And again, it was one of those practices that I thought, weird, you know, I'm not going to do it. But I did it uh, in a variety of different circumstances. And each time I did it, it was, it was pretty amazing to me because I'd give this person a gift and 
it's like their face would light up in some way and they'd feel so happy and it would just be this moment inside of me of saying oh yeah they want to be happy too look at that we share that and so even that that rather unusual sort of practice can be one of the things that points us back to that very basic fact which we so often forget the other funny experience I had in Israel and Jerusalem was when I was walking with some friends in the old city in the marketplace which is just teeming with life with sights and sounds and it's it's a bizarre you know great color and uh, variety and intensity and I was walking down this alleyway in the marketplace with these friends when one of the shopkeepers came out and called out to me, I have what you need. And I was thrilled. I mean, I felt like this thrill went through my whole body. And I thought, oh, wow, he has what I need. And I turned around to go to him when I thought, wait a minute. (laughs) First of all, I don't need anything. Second of all, how would he know he has what I need? But that moment was so telling, you know, of stopping and turning and wanting so much to believe, oh, good, he has what I need. I thought about what our lives are like in this culture where we hear that in a normal day, an ordinary day, we hear that hundreds of times. Something is crying out to us saying, I have what you need, and I have what you need, and I have what you need, and I have what you need. And if only you had this, then you'd feel complete. You'd be finally, perfectly, totally happy, if only. And I think about how we incorporate that message, how we we take it in as I need, and I need, and I need and I am deficient, and I don't have enough, and I am not enough. And who actually lives here anyway? So we challenge some very strong conditioning in doing a practice like this. That's why there are times of a lot of upheaval. It's not all smooth sailing. But the very nature of how we practice, how we concentrate, how we begin again, how we learn not to judge ourselves, is expressive of the very state we are trying to remember, we're trying to reach. So that the path and the end really become the same thing. There's no distance between them. It said that the Buddha taught metta as the antidote to fear, which is a very interesting teaching. Because if we're not drawing lines and saying, okay, this is me and that is other, or this is nothing and me and other are over there, if we're not drawing those lines of division or we're not creating those barriers, then it seems as though what there would be instead is really a great immensity of space. 
And that, I think, is the nature of metta being the antidote to fear. In our ordinary lives, when we get lost in one of the torments, like strong desire, anger, fear, there's a certain fixating quality that happens. It's like if you were standing in that marketplace and a hundred voices were calling out to you, I have what you need, and you went for everyone. It's very dizzying, very busy. And we could easily overlook everything else that was there because we get fixated, we get defined by our awareness collapses around certain things. Our lives become very small in effect. But what happens when we begin to open up and we begin to experience a greater spaciousness? It's a spaciousness of inclusion, not of bleakness. Then many things might arise, but it would be different. Once I went to India, and I was sitting with a certain teacher, and I had a kind of meta-filled experience in that room of feeling a very strong sense of connection with all of life and all beings, which I relayed to the teacher. And he said to me, well, now you'll never feel fear again. And I thought, yeah, right. (laughs) And I don't think it was ten minutes later that I was out on the streets of India and something happened. And I felt this tremendous wave of fear go through me. But much to my surprise, because I had just had that experience of openness and confidence, it was also different. Somehow the fear didn't stick in quite the same way or it was moving through a bigger space. I wasn't relating to it like, I am such a fearful person and that's who I am and that's all that I am and that's who I always will be. And so, even though I was right and that fear came again very quickly, he was also not totally wrong in that things were different. Not because the fear didn't come knocking, but because I was relating to it differently. And this is very much the nature of the metta practice. It's like every time we express one of those intentions through the phrases, whether we realize it or not, it is taking us closer to the experience of that kind of spaciousness where everything happens. There's a very famous and beautiful quotation from the Thai teacher, Ajahn Chah, who said that in meditation the mind becomes quieter and quieter like a still forest pool. Many wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool, but you will be still. And he said, this is the happiness of the Buddha. I've always liked that image because of all the wonderful and rare animals coming to drink at the pool. It's like everything still happens the ones we really like and the ones we don't like so much and some very peculiar-looking animals and wonderful and strange. But you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So it's not a practice in which we need to fear what might come up in our experience. Everything, in some way, is a part of the process. There's no line that we draw and say, 
ooh, you know, I was supposed to feel this, but instead I felt that. Everything is a part of the the process, and having difficulties is a very natural part of the process as well. Our normal tendency is just to push certain things out of our awareness, push certain people out of our hearts, push ourselves out of our hearts when we don't like something we've done or we've made a mistake. And by not following out that conditioning, we are revolutionizing our minds simply by relating very differently to everything. One of my great experiences in my earliest practice was after suffering for some time, because things were very difficult for me, marching up to the front of the room and saying to my teacher, I looked him right in the eye and I said, isn't there an easier way? Which was great upon reflection because... It's almost as though, he's a very kind and compassionate person, but it was almost as though I had the impression that if I could only catch him off guard, you know, I would force him to admit that, yes, you know, there's a far easier way, and I know it, but I choose not to tell it to you because I'd really like to see you suffer for as long as possible. And when I decide that your suffering has been enough, then I will tell you the easier way, which of course was not so. This is the easy way. Because in any moment that we begin again, that we recognize we've been lost, and we can do that without judgment, we are practicing perfectly, even if it has been a very long time since we were present, since we said a phrase. It's not as though there's remedial work that needs to be done. You know, you realize that It's been 20 minutes and you've been lost in fantasy. You don't then have to punish yourself for another 20 minutes before you can come back. Our ability to come back, to return fully, to start again, is an expression of our wholeness. And it's complete, it's perfect every single time we do it. And so we do it again and again and again. We see many, many things come and go. Our desires and our fears and all of the conditions we place upon our love. We see everything. What's important is how we see them. Do we see them with some awareness and understanding and compassion? Or do we see them and add a tremendous amount of judgment on top of that? I learned about beginning again, actually in my earliest practice, when I had a tremendous amount of physical pain. It was huge, horrible, terrible, awful, awful pain. And I was sitting in India with a teacher who suggested that we try to sit for an hour without moving. And I always moved. I moved. 10 minutes into the sitting or 15 minutes into the sitting for a whole variety of different reasons. Um, And what was so ironic about that experience was that having moved maybe 10 or 20 or 30 minutes into the sitting, I would 
then sometimes judge myself for the entire rest of the sitting for having moved. Like, why did you do that? You didn't move so quickly yesterday. You sat. You must have sat longer. You're always the first one to move. You know, why isn't anyone else moving? You know, everyone else is enlightened. And, you know, on and on and on and on and on. It was really very ironic because, in fact, the disruption to my concentration from the act of physical movement lasted about five seconds, whereas the disruption to my concentration from being lost, submerged, completely believing all of that judgment could sometimes last a good half an hour. And so I learned the tremendous importance of just beginning again. To get lost in all of that judgment is simply wasting our time and continuing on the path of greater suffering, which we have trodden many times before. If self-judgment were viable means to freedom and enlightenment, we would all be very, very, very free. But it doesn't seem to work. And so what we need to learn is a kind of wholehearted commitment, not holding anything back, with a great intention toward continuity of practice, but without all of the judgment. And we learn that moment by moment. We learn that through beginning again. We will see many, many things come up in our minds. And that's fine. How we relate to them is really the key question. This last summer, uh, Joseph and I went to a Buddhist Christian conference at Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky. And the Dalai Lama was there, which was a wonderful experience. He gave a talk one night, which was being taped for the McNeil-Lara Report on uh, television. And in the course of the talk, which was very sort of proper and appropriate and serious, uh, he made this comment. He said that that day when he'd arrived, he'd been given a tour of the monastery the monastery there is self-supporting through the production of cheese and fruitcake. And he'd been given a piece of cheese, but what I really wanted was a piece of cake. <laughs> and he said, very sad, no one offered me any cake. Ha, 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 you know. And he's laughing uproariously. And I actually, I leaned over and I said to the bishop sitting next to me, do you think we could get him some cake? <laughs> But it was really, it was great because it was so clear that having a piece of cake wasn't going to be the essence of his greatest happiness. And the fact that he could laugh at that desire and in fact disclose it to religious dignitaries of two different traditions and a television audience, that was more at the heart of his happiness. It was how he was relating to it all. And it's a great lesson that we can take from that. When we first opened our center, this very one, uh, in the early period, maybe within the first month or two, we got two letters that were quite notable, mostly for how they were addressed. The first one was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society,
And the second one was addressed to the instant meditation style. And I just loved it. It was so great. For a long time, the second one, the Instant Meditation Society, was actually my favorite because we used to sit around here and and, uh, speculate with each other, like, what in the world do you think they were thinking? Like, you know, and my mind went everywhere to like, all the way to, you know, maybe they thought it was like a dehydrated kit, you know, and you just like, you send away for it and you add water and you get meditation. and then at different times, depending on what was happening in my life, the Hindsight Meditation Society was somehow more significant. And they're both interesting, actually. In some funny way, this practice is almost more about hindsight than about anything. Because it is a practice of trust in all of this beginning again. It's very hard to say what's happening in the midst of it and you need to go through all of the different kinds of changes and waves and see what happens it's definitely not instant except in that each moment of pure intention is perfect from the Buddhist point of view the intention behind an action is the most important aspect of the action. And so what we're doing here is exploring the world of our intentions. How do we feel about ourselves? Can we make that offering to ourselves? How do we feel about beings who've been good to us and those who have not been so very good? And can we transform our intentions? Even if we cannot make the suffering go away, our own or someone else's, can we radically alter the way we relate to it through the force of our intention? So this is really the the realm of our practice. There's great subtlety, there's great irony, there's great paradox in all of it. And there's a tremendous process of revelation, of understanding. You just have to keep going. One of my early teachers used this example. I'm not even sure if it's true in the natural world. Someone will tell me someday, I'm sure. (laughs) But um, the example was, if you take a piece of wood and you hit it with uh, an axe trying to split it. And you hit that piece of wood 99 times and nothing happens. Then you hit it the 100th time and it just breaks open. Very often, when we get to that 100th time, we think, what did I do differently? What was different about this? Was I holding it differently? Was my stance different? But really, it's not that we did anything differently. It was really that the fiber of the wood is weakened throughout all of those successive blows. And of course, like number 32, number 33, number 34, it doesn't feel very good. 
It's not instant gratification, as we are used to. But it's an essential part of the process. Because sometime, the fiber of that wood will be weakened enough, and things will just break open. And it's more than that as well. Because it's our very willingness to keep going, and it's everything we learn in the process of going on. And it's our patience and our humility and our forgiveness and our care and our compassion and our endeavor and our sense of humor and everything that is really carrying us, that's allowing us to take the next step, to hit it one more time, to say one more phrase, to begin again. It's all of those qualities that actually are the path. The very fact that we are going on that we can go through changing experiences. We can learn to care for ourselves. We can learn to care for others. We can see more clearly that we can be patient. We can allow all of these different things to come and go. That is actually what makes up our practice. It's extraordinary because that hundredth blow has that sense of grace to it because all of those factors can be invisible. We can't really measure our patience, our sense of humor, our ability to let go, our ability to start again. They're quite immeasurable. And yet it's those very things that we are actually doing. My friend Sylvia Borstein was once teaching metta with me and she said, really it is kind of funny, you know, like a group of adults sitting together in a room wishing. But it's not so funny because it's not so funny in a peculiar sense because what is happening under the surface is really what's happening. And so we really try to use every moment that we can as a perfect expression of all of these qualities, of connection, of non-separation, of clear seeing, of forgiveness, and of loving-kindness. Each moment that we do that, whether we realize it or not, we are hitting that piece of wood. And it's the very fact that we are willing to do it without knowing sometimes precisely how it will all unfold. That's what really expresses the, the greatness of our hearts and brings us closer to that natural state. Let's sit together for a few minutes. 